Stand Firm Conference 2023, hosted by Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Underwood in partnership with Ascension Church in Spring Hill and Ormo, Reformation Church in Waco, and Hope Reformed Baptist Church, Gold Coast in Helensville. Don't just sit on the bench, check out the details of these churches in the description below and be active within a local church. May God bless and equip you for good works. He's an experienced church planner and pastor. He's recently established and is now lead pastor of Ascension Church in Brisbane. So please welcome up Pastor Craig Island. How's everyone doing tonight? Wow. All right. So we're going to give that another roam. How, Tom, where should this be? Can I roam around with it? Just keep moving? And No. All right. We've got to... We're going to park it somewhere. How's everyone doing tonight? All right, very good. I reckon that's about 40%. These lights are extremely bright, so I cannot see where the stage ends. So you'll tell me if I'm getting a little too close to the edge because uh, I won't bounce. I promise you that. Uh, that will be quite the, uh, the splat indeed. Uh, I remember, am I on? Am I on? I remember a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, when Tom first contacted me. Uh, I was pastoring in the US and he asked me to be a speaker at the Stand Firm conference, but it was kind of during all of the, the COVID madness. And so I was pastoring in East Texas at the time. And I remember having, a, you know, agreeing to it. Tom sounds great. I'd love to be a speaker at uh, this Stand Firm. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what I was signing up for. I uh, soon realized that I would have to be awake from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Texas time to be able to, to make those sessions and speak at that conference. Now my family and I reside back here in southeast Queensland. This is so much easier than, uh, than at least trying to stay up all night. And for you, the, the audience, I remember seeing some clips or some pictures from my first few Stand Firm conferences. Uh, maybe, is it on here that was at that first stand or first few Stand Firm where like the screen was huge, right? And I was just like this massive face on the screen. Remember the Q&A with like Vic and Tom on this couch and there was just this, this you know, my face which needs no... No magnification at all. It's sufficiently ugly in its natural state and uh, just bearing down upon these guys trying to do a Q&A, but just so glad to be here with you all tonight at this conference here on the Gold Coast. As uh, the esteemed gentleman who introduced me let you all know, uh, my wife and I and our children, our family have just planted a brand new church in Brisbane City, like literally in Brisbane. We're in Spring Hill. We started a few months ago in the valley. That surprisingly wasn't quite quite working out. There'd be people walking past our building Sunday morning, mind you, and to them it was still Thursday night. They had not gone to bed and they were in all kinds of states of uh, just dishevelment. And so we're really thankful that God has provided us a new venue in Spring Hill. So if you're ever in the city or you know anyone that's up in Brisbane City needs a church, by all means, look us up at Ascension Church. Now, all of those preliminaries aside, well, I do need to correct one thing. I have not co-authored a book with Charles Spurgeon, uh, but that is going to go on my resume after having heard that tonight. That's, a, that's quite an appellation, right? Uh, no, I, I, I had this idea and Spurgeon ran with it. No, that's not true either. Uh, Spurgeon wrote a book, All of Grace. If you haven't read it, grab it, download it. It's an amazing resource. And the last few years, I've worked on a kind of a, a revision, just a light update of the language was published by Kara's Publishing late last year. I'm sure you can find it at all good bookstores, not least at the back there. Look around. If they don't have it, demand it. Say, Pastor Craig said that you were allowed to have a free copy if it's not available, and we'll make that happen for you. 
grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The topic I've been assigned tonight is, quite literally, the gospel. The gospel itself. And I can think of no better tone, no better chord to strike than this particular topic of the good news of Jesus Christ. But in discussing the gospel, it is very apparent to any cursory observer that the Christian church, particularly that in the West, and let's even dial our focus in, and let's say the Christian church in Australia has not necessarily done a a stand-up job at isolating, clarifying, and proclaiming the gospel in more difficult times. Now, I don't want tonight's talk to have a, a critical tone to it. But I do want it to feel like a, a challenge. I, I want it to feel like, like a corrective, like there's, there's more we can do. There's, there's better ways we can think, and there's clearer ways that we can articulate the good news of Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read somewhat of a lengthy portion, not too long, picking up our reading right here in, uh, in verse 18, all the way through to the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Hear now the word of our good and glorious and gracious God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, that the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. May God bless this reading of his own precious, infallible, and inspired word to us together this evening. Here is the essence, or rather the, the crux of at least my attempt of a presentation here tonight, is what is the gospel? What, what is the gospel? It is without question the great proliferation of the last 10, 20, maybe even 30 years in evangelicalism in the West, in Australia, in America, in the UK, right across the world to, to increase this level of gospel talk. 
gospel things. Gospel functioning as, a, as an adjective, right? Gospel music, gospel conference, gospel preaching, gospel literature, gospel track, to, to increase gospel talk. But is there a sense of certainty as to precisely what we, what we mean when we say the gospel? Or when the Apostle Paul reminds the Romans in chapter 116 of his epistle that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Is there, a, is there an understanding that's, that's somewhat unanimity around this idea of what on earth do we mean? What about in this room tonight? Some would say, Maybe it's a fairly homogenous group we've gathered, right? The, the ethos of the conference, the types of churches that get behind and support it, the types of sponsors that have signed on to be part of this great event. Some would argue that this is a fairly homogenous group. Maybe we all kind of vote in similar ways. We all handle our finances in similar ways. We all kind of live with similar values. What if we polled the, the group here tonight? What if we polled the audience Every single person was giving a small slip of paper and a pen and simply asked to write out in the simplest, shortest form you can, what is the gospel? Do you, do you think even in a group like this here tonight, we would arrive at anything nearing anonymity or, or unanimity, I should say unanimity, clarity and agreement? What do we think it is? What does Paul mean when he says to the Romans that this gospel is the power of God under salvation. What, what does Paul mean when he writes to the Corinthians that, that this gospel in Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God? And to those that are being saved, it is their ultimate hope, their ultimate joy, and their place where they anchor all of their peace and satisfaction. There's never been a generation of Christians who used gospel talk as much as ours. And yet, staggeringly, sometimes it's hard to see anything, but maybe that being a masterful deception by the enemy. In other words, the, the devil might say, this is maybe like a thought experiment in the nature of like a C.S. Lewis screw tape. I'm never going to do that justice. But, but maybe the devil would say to his minions one day, let's not, let's not hide the idea of the gospel. Let's not, let's not conceal it, cover it, or go to war against it directly. Rather, Let's let them talk about it all the time. Let's, let's increase familiarity with the idea of the gospel. Let, let's make the word gospel the adjective to literally everything the church will do for so long, at some point, they forget to even ask. What does that mean? What is the gospel? Has the father of lies successfully clouded the idea of the essence which appeared to the apostle Paul to be so crystal clear so obvious and so denunciatory against Satan, sin, and death. What is the gospel? Well, clearly to the Apostle Paul, as we've consulted him, we could say all the apostles, we could say our, our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, we could say the gospel is pregnant with the most irrepressible power that it has changed more lives in the history of our human species than any other thing. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Now, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here tonight, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make the dangerous assumption that most of us have something of a, a loose handle on what the gospel is, but we will not close this session without giving some clarification around that. But for a few moments, bear with me 
as we discuss the way the apostles understood the power of this gospel. It's an historical narrative, that's clear. And it penetrates the deepest crevasses of every person's heart who is radically transformed by this, literally, good news. Good news. The gospel, the gospel is not less than data. It's not less than information. It's not less than irreducible components of clarity. But the gospel is more. The gospel does more. The gospel is not just information that you, that you learn by rote memorization. Jesus, sin-free life, death on a cross, burial, bodily resurrection, triumphant ascension, soon coming return. That's a creedal gospel statement. I'm good. I'm in the faith. I've checked the box. I'm fine. You know, to the apostles, the gospel conveyed so much more. It is an historical narrative. But it is the most profound tale, story, retelling of events that's ever occurred in the history of our species. It is an old, old story, yet it is unaged from its earliest inclining. It is unweathered by millennia of retelling, and it is unburdened by millions upon literally millions drawing upon its infinite power. That's the gospel. Never grows thin, never gets weary, never gets tired, never becomes exhausted. The gospel, as the power of God unto salvation, thrives and pulses with the very power of Almighty God. It is the only message that saves, not in a mechanistic way. Here is an important correction. Sometimes we can say such big and and adventurous things about the the power of the gospel. The impression we get is it's kind of like a spell. Like you just have to say the right words in the right combination with the right inflection and emphasis and, and you have to say it the right way and the results will materialize. That's not how the gospel works. I remember many years ago, and I shouldn't dig, you know, digress with anecdote, but I, I'll take my chances on this one. Many years ago, I was a youth pastor in Logan City, and I, I loved being a youth pastor. And I had a young guy in my youth ministry, not a leader. Uh, did someone just scoff at Logan City? How dare you? How dare you? We didn't all grow up in the ivory tower of Rabina, right? Goodness. If you need to leave because there's a Loganite on stage, I get it. I get it. All right, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I had this young guy in my congregation, uh, in my youth ministry, that, that was a passionate, zealous, not often very thoughtful evangelist. And he genuinely believed, he was maybe 16, 17, and, and as his youth pastor, I, I didn't see my job as to, as to kind of hamper and throw, you know, throw a wet blanket over his fire. I just wanted to help to inform him the way the gospel works because he had got it into his head that the text in Romans where Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be... He just, he just kind of locked into that, right? And he was under this impression that if he could get people to call on the name of the Lord, and by that he thought it meant, say Jesus, they were locked in. Even against their will. Even if he could trick them into it. Even if he could coerce them. Even if he could bribe them. He was such a zealous man. He told me that he'd been out on the street in the city among the homeless people that used to frequent King George Square. I don't know if such a thing even exists anymore. The square that is. I know homeless people still exist. I don't know if the square is there. And he would go up to people and pay them to just say, Jesus is Lord. And if you said it, 
he would notch you down as, as a scout, you're, you're a convert, and then he would testify to the glory of God. This is not how the power of the gospel works. It's not a spell or a curse or an incantation. It's not, it's not mechanistic. Rather, it is a message that is impregnated with God's power and what astounding power it has. The, the indescribable, staggering nature, you know, as I was preparing for this talk here tonight, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole online just looking at testimonies. Testimonies of sometimes the least likely people to get saved. It was, it was at first fairly jarring and overwhelming, and soon enough I felt myself almost high, like I, was, like, like, like I was just dizzy with this exhilarating feeling of these testimonies. I, I narrowed it down. People in 2019 that have got testimonies published online, still in the faith today, uh, from middle-class mums and dads trying to make sense of the world. In 2019, there was a man who said, the power of the gospel, he testified, stopped me from a shooting rampage in a primary school in America. The next one I saw was this man saying, my cocaine habit was killing my NFL career, name redacted, <laughs> name redacted. He said, I encountered a power greater than the white powder that enslaved me, and it was the gospel that radically changed my life. There was another test. These are just headlines. Another one. Jesus gave me what boozing and brawling couldn't. My journey from the criminal underworld to the foot of the cross. There's another one. This uh, testimony of a, of a gangbanger executioner. One of, the, one of the Mexican underworld gangs in, in Southern California. He said, my role in the gang was to mark people for death and then execute them. And in 2019, the power of the gospel radically changed my life. There's no end to these testimonies, which in and of itself is the point. I mean, sure, I, I, I could stand here tonight and regale you with tremendous stories. And, and you know in your own life, the, the, the seemingly most unreachable people have been found humbled by the good news of Jesus. Not everyone. That's what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians. Isn't he telling us that? That, that, that to the wise of the world, th those that have propped themselves up and, and, and pampered themselves on their, their own intellectual accolade and achievement, the gospel is foolishness to them. And, and those that are power-hungry, miracle-seeking, always wanting signs and, and wonders, and, and they chase the spectacular as though the sideshow is the main show, and they miss the cross, and they miss Christ, the gospel is a stumbling block to them. But to those who are being saved, to those that find in the good news of Jesus the most staggering message you could ever hear, that God in glory so loved this horrid, depraved, broken world that he submitted his own son to live in this midst, to, to live in this world sin-free and yet to die upon the cross to be the standing, to, to be the substitute, to, to lay down his life for the least deserving. Because that's what love does. And then to rise again on the third day in victory and triumph over sin. Talking about testimonies, you've almost certainly heard, you've almost certainly heard about the, tar, the, the Tarshan Pharisee, no doubt. 
this, this man was brilliant. He had a colossal intellect. He, 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 had a studious, he had a studious level of work ethic that outshone all of his peers. He first encountered the Christian faith when he was serving his rigorous, rigid, law-filled religious duties in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. A brilliant mind, never trounced in debate, never encountered a complex idea he couldn't grasp with speed and stunning comprehension. This man was head and shoulders above the rest. And his first interaction with the gospel is a member of the local church testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which of course ended in utter bloodshed and the stoning and the sacrifice of the first Christian martyr. This religious zealot then went into a state of madness, persecuting all he could find who confessed Christ. This religious zealot is soon converted on the road to Damascus. It was Saul of Tarsus, converted. Now, among the Greeks, Paul. This, this Paul preached this gospel, not as an abstract idea, not, not as a new concept, not as something novel and brilliant, but as the very essence of the message that quite literally changed his own life. What I find staggering about the example of the Apostle Paul, or if you will, the, the other apostles, is not so much their conversion, as amazing as that is, but their resilience under the most acute and pernicious suffering. Have you ever meditated on this? Have you ever thought what it must have been like as, you know, people have argued, skeptics have argued, right? Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Wrong. They're wrong. Clarify that. But they will make the claim. And then they will demonstrate just how utterly ludicrous their claim is by saying, I believe that those initial band of believers concocted the story and went about disseminating it. You ever thought how crazy that was? You ever thought how insane that is? When each one of these apostles, let's just dial our focus into to the apostles, were willing to undergo the most horrific, painful tortures that the human mind could, could ever engineer in their confession to the good news of Jesus. What, what about the apostle Paul? Five times, he says, I was whipped in synagogue. Five times. I was doing some reading recently and I found this, this very gripping account of the nature of this New Testament corporal punishment. And it has some bearing upon our own Australian history. This historian, John Pollock, did a, did a wonderful job to explain the nature of it. He said, the pain of the victim under the lash might be gauged by a flogging of an early Australian convict in the autobiographical novel Ralph Rashleigh. For whom the first dozen lashes he described like jagged wire tearing furrows in his flesh. And the second dozen lashes felt like molten lead was being poured through those channels in skin. Could you imagine what that must have been like? Why don't we engage in another thought experiment here this evening? Why don't we pretend you were one of those apostles in that upper room trying to work out what on earth are we going to do now? 
Right? And, and hypothetically, if we allow the, the skeptic's idiotic claim to stand just for a moment so that we can knock it down, let's say that you're one of those apostles and you haven't really seen Jesus rise, but it's a pretty good fairy tale to buy into and to propagate. Let's imagine that's true. How many lashes under the whip do you think you could sustain before you screamed out, we made it up, I'm sorry, it was dumb, good idea at the time, seemed like it, I guess it's backfired, right? Like at what point do you say to yourself, not the best idea? At what point? What about when these apostles came to die? Just about every one of these apostles was killed for bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ, just about every one. And killed in the most heinous ways. We'll take Peter, for example. Fixed upside down on a cross. He hung dying upside down for days. He could have come down at any point if he told the guards, let me let you in on a little secret. This whole story that we've been traveling the known world, propagating, selling people on, building churches. We never really saw Jesus. Could you... I don't know, let me down. Other apostles were literally whipped for hours, hundreds of lashes until they died. Another apostle was dragged by a horse for an hour until his head banging on the pavement finally split open. Others were speared, thrown from high buildings, crucified, beheaded. John the Beloved was lowered down into boiling vats of oil, feet first, to kill him in the most slow, excruciating way. And he would have been liberated in a moment if he just confessed, we made it up. But they didn't make it up. This has kind of given me memories of last year's Stan Fern. I was on the Q&A panel. Someone asked me to talk about and discuss the, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. And how our, how our faith in Christ is faith in the proofs of the resurrection. And I remember very clearly, with as, much, with as much strength as I could muster, telling our audience last year, your faith in Christ is not grounded in the robustness of the proofs. It's grounded in the reality itself. There is an empty grave because Christ has risen. Therein lies your hope. That is the power of God which is resident in you by the gospel. Each one of these apostles seemed glad to seal with their death the confession of being an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What makes this all the more spectacular, we just press a little further and then we'll move on. What makes this all the more spectacular is not only the suffering of each of these apostles, but that each eyewitness was separated from the other, distanced by years and miles. Like it's one thing if the Roman government had got all the apostles together in the Colosseum and then they're, they're dying the most excruciating, painful death and they can't really tell the truth because there's Peter, there's John, there's Matthew. This is awkward. These apostles are in extremities of the known world, separated by sometimes decades. They could have just given up the gig and it would never have been known. Preserve life. It would never have been found out. Do you know what power is achieving this persistence 
in the good news of Christ. It is the power of the gospel. What power can so change a life and remain? That change will remain under the most horrific strain and burden and pain. What power can do that? Let me tell you tonight, it is not sentiment. It is not positive self-talk. It's not any of those things. It's people being drawn to Christ because of the power in his gospel. I might ask you Christians tonight, maybe believers in this room haven't quite had that spectacular kind of a conversion. Maybe you're born in a Christian home, right? And so maybe you feel like, well, I feel like I, I kind of missed out a little bit on, on, on some of that contrast of, of night to day, right? Uh, 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 of sinfulness to, uh, to being brought into the faith. Maybe you feel a little bit vulnerable by that. Do not. Certainly do not. I will testify as one who lived for the devil for 16 years of my life. No one ever told me the gospel, never heard it, never met another Christian that was courageous enough to tell me there is nothing to be ashamed about being raised in a Christian home. In fact, this will shock you, I plan to raise my own kids in a Christian home. There's no advantage in being able to boast about how many years you lived for Satan because the power of the gospel works on human hearts Regardless of background, upbringing, cultural proclivities, idiosyncrasies, family dynamics, the power of the gospel is the same. It is the power of God unto salvation, foolishness to the wisdom of the world, a stumbling block to those that just want to chase the spectacular. It is the power of the old, old story of the cross. And to think after thinking about all of this tonight, talking about all of this, to think that we might live in the generation that seems most bored or losing interest, too apt to run after other things, other novelties, Christian trivialities, and lose sight of the gospel. Here in this gospel... That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In this gospel, Christ living sin free where we failed. Christ dying on the splintered Roman cross to bear in his body our sin, our shame, our fallenness. To take upon himself our death penalty. To atone for us to propitiate the wrath of God, to expiate the guilt of sinners. This gospel of the God-man slain, the author of life crucified, it's the most staggering paradox you'll read in your Bible. Christ, the author of life, killed at the hands of sinful men. The one that wrote life to begin with has had his life expire on the cross. This Christ buried in the borrowed grave. This Christ on the third day rising in victory and triumph. You know what the saddest part of all? Is none of his followers were there. Not even out of curiosity. I, I know our Gospels read that the, the several women went down, yeah, to embalm, to anoint him with spices and oils. It's one of the most, like, Jesus could not have been more clear. You, you read your gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Son of Man shall be lifted up, handed over, crucified. On the third day, he will rise. 
You would think out of just a vain curiosity, Peter would be hiding behind a bush somewhere. Like, I don't know. He talked about it a lot. Was it real? I didn't believe it, but he did talk about it a lot. Maybe something's going to happen. Jesus emerges out of his tomb, victorious over Satan's sin and death, fully opening a, a new and a living way. And no one, no one is there. Such is the fallenness of man. Such is the reflection on the depravity of our human nature. And such is the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ risen. Christ ascended. Christ reigning. Christ returning. This is the good news that was preached to you. Let's close with a word of prayer, dedicating not just this evening, but this entire conference to God's glory and to our good. Father God, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Lord God, we need the gospel, but yet everywhere around us, there are distractions. And sometimes, God, the distractions are really obvious and they can be identified and avoided, but sometimes the distractions come cloaked in the best of Christian garb. Sometimes the distractions come worded in the most optimistic Christian language. Sometimes, God, all of this proliferating gospel talk can be the clearest and the most pernicious distraction from the gospel itself. Let us not lose sight of this word. The Apostle Paul is our reminder, Lord God. He says, when he came among them at Corinth, he determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. None of us here tonight, Lord God, could hold a candle to the knowledge of the Apostle Paul. The intellect, the study, the academic achievement, the brilliance of the man. And he told us that he suspends all of that for the glorious privilege of speaking of Christ and Him crucified. Lord God, help us tonight to rediscover a love, a passion, a zeal for the gospel. Help us tonight, Lord God, to relish in the salvation of our own souls. A reality we all too often grow too familiar with. Father, help us to rediscover a zeal for the lost. As it's demonstrated in the lives of the apostles. To preach Christ and Him crucified. Knowing that we're going to get mocked, we're going to get hated, and we're going to get persecuted. But this message of salvation, Father, is the wisdom of God. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. Bless us now, not just tonight, but throughout the entire duration of this conference, that Christ may be exalted in our midst and our lives may be radically empowered to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.